As uh, we turn our hearts and minds to hear from God's word, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. And we're launching right back into the middle, pretty much, of Hosea's uh, prophecy of redemptive judgment uh, against Israel. And, and it may feel like we're sort of jumping right back into stuff that is, that is pretty heavy. And, and it is, it is heavy. But it's so crucial to remember what Cameron reminded us of just this, um, this morning, just a few minutes ago, that God's judgment is redemptive. That in all of these things, he's calling us to return to the Lord. And so even as we hear yet again about the, the failings of Israel, the broken relationship that they have, have done by their rebellion and their false worship, it's crucial that we take, um, that we take big gulping breaths of, of the sort of gospel air that has been patched throughout Hosea. You know, we've seen it over and over again that, um, you know, at the end of a certain chapter or maybe right in the middle of a certain chapter, as Israel has been hearing about their um, rebellion and about God's estimation of the situation, how, how horrendous it all is, and yet God continues to sweetly remind his people, because of his covenant faithfulness, because of his steadfast love, he will bring them to repentance, and he will return them to the good promises that he's made in his covenant love. And, and it's supremely um, told to us uh, in the, at the very end of Hosea uh, in chapter 14. That's why we've been repeating it to ourselves so often. To remember, to hold this out before us, that though we study these, these heavy things and though we see in our own hearts that the many times we've failed the Lord, we failed to live in the, the righteousness that he's called us into, that there are gospel promises, that God is ultimately for us in all of these things. And so it's so crucial that we remember that his, his, uh, his, his, his judgment is redemptive. But, but as we consider Hosea 8, we're, we're jumping back into sort of the, the, the tale of their spiritual adultery. And, and this spiritual adultery really manifests itself in, in many ways. Last week, the accent from chapter 7 was more on uh, their, uh, their uh, adultery manifested in their spiritual pursuit or their, their political sp- pursuit of, of lesser lovers. And so, you know, they trusted in kings and the people themselves trusted in, in political systems and, and their, their heart and their minds weren't on the promises that God had made to them. Their hearts and minds were far from that. They, there was all these political machinations and, and, and kings were dying left and right, it seemed like. And, and the stability that they'd hoped to achieve and, and for a little while it seemed that they had achieved when they broke away from the southern kingdom was, was quickly fading away. And, and, and their spiritual adultery had manifested itself in, in their pursuit of sort of political hopes. And in this chapter, the accent seems to fall on uh, a different kind of, of spiritual adultery, a, a kind that manifests itself in the, the spiritual pursuit of lesser lovers. And so um, they, they, we see that they um, put their hope in, in a sort of rival religious system that, that set them apart from the southern kingdom and had manifested itself in their building sorts of... Um, golden calves and, and, and false shrines and all these sorts of altars and offering strange sacrifices and, and over it all, claiming the mantle of God's covenant people, still using the covenant language that they had been accustomed to, but behind that covenant language was nothing of the covenant faithfulness that God had called them to. And, and we see that this sort of spiritual uh, pursuit is as vain as their political one had been. Um, people them, the, of Israel themselves carry all these great hopes. They, they carry uh, their, their religious duties on their own shoulders. It's like, you know, they, they, they create the, the idol, and then they have to lift it up on their own shoulders, and they have to carry it around, and they have to set it in its place. And once they set it in its place, it can't go anywhere. It can't hear them when they cry. It can't answer them in the day of trouble. And, and, and so it's all vain. It's, 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 it's spiritually lifeless. 
And, and that's really the, the, the key of the confrontation of this chapter, of chapter 8. And, and we see in it sort of that the, the, the fruit of any false worship is not only spiritually destructive and humanizing, but it robs us of the, of the life and the goodness that God has for us in the worship of him. And, and spiritual or, or false worship makes us wrongly confident and, and gives us a, a dangerous spirit of self-reliance. And this is what happened to, to Israel. They wrongly supposed that their self-reliance in the political sphere would be enough to get them by, and they wrongly supposed that their self-reliance in the spiritual sphere will be enough to get them by, to answer them in, in the day of trouble. And, and we see in this uh, what is so crucial to see, and, and so oftentimes we just you know, walk through life with sort of blinders on, and we miss this crucial fact that, that sets the stage really for everything we do in life. And that's, that, that is the fact that worship sets the standard for everything. Worship sets the standard for the way we think about our interactions with our neighbors. It sets the standard for the way we view ourselves. It sets the standard for the way that we view our mission in the world. It sets the standard for the way we think about a whole host of issues from, you know, uh, the, the first things on our minds when we wake up in the morning to uh, the first thing or the last thing in our mind when we go to bed and everything in between. It's all shaped by the kind of people we are and the kind of people we're becoming by our worship. Now, this isn't to say that right worship means that we will get success in all the ways that we would like to have success or all the ways that the world defines success. But it does mean that right worship demonstrates the reality and the vitality of our relationship with God. It enables us to experience his, his love and care for us uh, in a way that we wouldn't otherwise experience it because of our sin, because there's something between us uh, that between us and God that can't get along, namely our sin. And, and when we, we recognize that fact and have our sin forgiven because of the cleansing blood of Jesus, we recognize that God cares for us and he loves us. And we experience his love and care for us in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And so false worship robs us of the joy that we were meant to have in God alone. And this means that ultimately it's destructive. And, and of course, this points us to the fact, finally, that we were made ultimately for God. And in everything that we do, we were meant to demonstrate his, his glory and, and have zeal for his kingdom in all of the interactions that we have, in, in all the thoughts that we have, in all the entertainment that we consume. So oftentimes, we, we just think, um, you know, even if we even if we have a very robust uh, doctrine of, of the sovereignty of God or a very robust doctrine of worship and you know, we have all the sorts of biblical things and biblical patterns lined up and we, we can say, okay, I, I get this right. I see how this is lined up in, in the Bible. I see how this all makes sense. And yet in, in a moment, we can you know, just turn on our phones and look up YouTube and, and not be thinking about the ways in which these things are sort of shaping the way that we are becoming. And that's not to say that uh, any, type of, any type of entertainment is wrong, but it is to say that um, we, we oftentimes walk through life without the recognition that in everything, God wants us to give him the glory. And in everything, we want to be thinking about how we can be uh, becoming more the kind of people who demonstrate that glory in the world to our neighbors and, and also to our own souls. Just remembering the song that we sung just a few moments ago, that there is a real sense in which we oftentimes have to speak to our own souls and say, soul, bless the Lord, because oftentimes we just go through life and uh, it just is, it's so elusive and, and our hearts are, are so um, uh, fascinated with other things or, or we're so corrupted or distracted or whatever it might be that the necessity is laid upon us to, to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and, and recognize in every situation that there's an opportunity to learn more about who God is for us. And, and finally, this points us back even to, to remember the first three chapters of Hosea. You remember how that sort of set up the, the narrative for us, helped us to understand the, the prophecy that 
constitutes the rest of the book. And remember that in, in the first three chapters, we see that just as um, uh, Gomer has, has had been a faithful to the marriage covenant with Hosea, and yet Hosea pursues her in love, so Israel has been unfaithful to the, the marriage covenant, the covenant that they have with God, and yet God pursues them in love. And we saw that Gomer had really become a commodity in her sin. She had, she had, she had used the covenant promises and, and viewed those sort of in a, in a commodified way as, as sorts of, um, as a means to get at something else. And we see that Israel does the, sort of the same thing. We see in our own hearts how we often do the same thing. We, we pursue the worship of God oftentimes in a commodified sort of way. Like, you know, I'll do this and then God will be obliged to do this for me. But that's not a relationship, and that's not the sort of relationship that Hosea was meant to have with Gomer, and it's not the sort of relationship that Israel is meant to have with God. And so God pursues Israel, and God pursues us to remind us that it's ultimately a relationship he's after. And, 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 and worship in that relationship helps us to experience that in a more deeply uh, and profound way. And so this means that there is nothing outside of a right, right relationship with God, uh, evidenced by right worship that can restore us to our created end. And it, it will enable us to flourish in the way that God meant for us to flourish. And so for a one-sentence sort of key truth for this chapter, I'd say it's that God desires true worship from his people, marked by faithfulness to him and humble reliance upon his care to protect us from the destructive cost of idolatry. Well, let's see it from the text itself. Hosea chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your lips... One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not of God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria... A wild donkey wandering alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the princes and the king and princes shall soon ride because of the tribute. We'll pause there for a minute. So in these verses, Israel is condemned for her empty repetition of the, the promises of the covenant, all the while ignoring what God had required of them. That, that is, as I said, Israel put covenant language over their idolatry, and expected that, basically, God would be fooled by their facade. They said, uh, my God, we are Israel. We, we are the beneficiaries of all the good promises, you, the promises that you've made from us. We have Abraham as our father and, and Jacob. Uh, we know you. And that's relational language. That, that's covenant language. But there's no true relationship and no true covenant faithfulness behind their words. They didn't know God. They, they'd basically forsaken the promises that he'd given to them. God was not their fortress and their strength. God was not their worship. They didn't worship God as, as truly their God, and, and their language really only fooled them. And just to show how pervasive their foolishness was, Hosea proceeds to show them that in the great spheres of life, they've neglected God's will and gone about their business in a spirit of self-reliance, of, of sort of saying, well, we got this. We, we know what we're doing. 
In the sphere of, of, of government, they've set up kings without pausing to reflect upon what God had required of them. And, and even if they had said, well, God hasn't really given us very much specific direction about the sort of kings that we ought to have, they ought to have reflected upon the fact that it was to the Davidic, Davidic covenant or the Davidic lineage that God had promised to, to bring them a king that, and a kingdom that would never end, and, and they'd rejected that. They'd, they'd wandered far from that. And in the sphere of temple worship, they have used God's good gifts to create yet another golden calf. And remember that this was the great sin of Jeroboam I. He was the king that, if you recall, led Israel in their rebellion against the southern kingdom, in their breakaway from the Davidic uh, line. And, and so, you know, as Jeroboam is setting up his kingdom and he has to sort of assert his authority, assert his, his right to rule, you know, in, in contrast to the Davidic lineage, uh, one of the ways in which he, he does this to firm up control is to say, well, we'll also set up our own rival temple system. Because they'd also, not only had they broken away from the Davidic lineage, they'd also broken away from the temple worship in Jerusalem. And, and so in the cities of, of Dan and Bethel, Jeroboam sets up great big golden calves and he says, well, this is what we'll worship. In place of the temple worship that we used to know in the southern kingdom, Israel will be known by this rival system of religious worship. So it was to have its own king, quite apart from anything that God had, had declared to them, and it was to have their own religious system, quite apart from anything that God had declared as good for them and, and, and as, as keeping with his covenant promises. And they've made it with their own hands. That, that's really the, the rub of it. They, and it's really foolish to claim that they keep covenant with God when the thing that they worship is the product of their own craftsmanship, their own ingenuity, and their own creativity. And in the sphere of diplomacy, they've hired out help uh, from foreign nations and have not depended upon the Lord, their, their strength. Their network of allies gives them uh, a false sense of security and an illusion of strength, but their language of knowing God doesn't square with their trust in foreign princes. And, and what does Hosea show is the result of all this? He says that they are sowing into the wind. When they, when they go to reap all the things, that, all the fruit that they expect from all these sorts of creative, ingenious ways of figuring life out, uh, all they'll find is empty fields and a destructive uh, dust storm. And, and then he says, even if, even if hypothetically, their, their fields did yield grain, uh, uh, there would be no flour in the heads. And even if there was flour in the heads, and, and they did yield you know, food for them, it would all be destroyed by foreign nations. So really, there's destruction all the way down. No matter which way that Israel tries to think of it, the, the destructive consequences of their idolatry are going to hit home pretty hard. But how did Israel get here? Well, they spurned God's law and worship. They have no interest in, in obeying him. And, and this is a familiar story, and it's terrifying in its simplicity. Israel has put themselves in the way of destruction because they've wanted nothing to do with faithfulness to the covenant that God has made them. They're, they're willing to lay hold of the covenant promises, all right, provided that they can suit them to their own ends in, in an act of commodification, as I said, of, of basically saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll, outwardly I'll do the sorts of things that God commands me to do, but you know, re really what I'm hoping is to get all the things that I want without any dependence upon God, without any concern for all those, oh, all those laws that he gives me that I just don't feel like obeying, without really any desire to love him and esteem him and ascribe to him all the worth that is his due. So they're willing to use covenant language even to call upon God as if they knew him. But it begins with a rejection at the heart of God's good commandments as not worth their attention. And, and this really happens in many ways. We see it in our own hearts, don't we? It happens when we don't take God's commandments seriously, supposing he doesn't really care about the things that we do. 
This is the way we used to walk in our sin, and uh, Jesus has redeemed that, that uh, sinful nature, and, and he's, he's made us more aware of the excellence and, and the good things of, God, of God's commandments, but still we find our war in our own hearts and souls very often. We, 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 we still sometimes think of God's commandments as not really for our good. And, and this false worship happens when we think that God, God's commandments are frankly wrong and not really for our good. They're, they're too overbearing, or maybe they're too detailed, uh, this is, we hear this on many sides today. God's commandments today are often considered to be the antithesis to good, as bigoted and hateful. And this false worship happens when we think that God's word is irrelevant, supposing that we have within our own selves all the resources to figure out how to live life and to honor God and, and to love our neighbors. And false worship happens when we think that God's good gifts are not really worth having, when we think that the promises of sin are a better offer than the promises of God. And when we do this, we deny that he is true and trustworthy and faithful. And false worship happens when we think that God is too much trouble. There are more interesting things to do on a Sunday morning, or more interesting things to occupy our time throughout the week, or maybe just things that we would rather do to set ourselves up for success in the future. So, you know, well, maybe it's a good thing to read my Bible, but, you know, I've got to get these, this, 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 this done so that I can set myself well up for this promotion or get my schoolwork done so that I, you know, can get a good grade or whatever it is. We think that God's good gifts are not really that good in comparison with all the other sorts of things that we could spend our time on. And when this is our attitude, we don't really worship God as he deserves and really as he desires. And so we see that false worship doesn't happen just when we... Uh, on the outward or in the externals, set up a big golden calf and bow down to it. We see that false worship really begins in the heart. It begins when we esteem other things in place of God. And so how do we worship God in truth rather than in falsity? True worship doesn't come about just because um, you know, we refuse to set up golden calves or just because in the outward external sort of ways we uh, honor God in, in the sorts of things that we think that he has commanded us to do. We show up on time, or maybe we are faithful to read our Bible throughout the whole week, and we say, okay, that does it. Um, no, true worship begins when we, say with, when we say with the psalmist, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have no good apart from you. And when that is the, the, the heart cry of our soul, that's what worship is about. It's not about us. It's not about making it about us. It's about giving God the, the worth that he is due because of who he is and who he is for us. And when we refuse to do this, we, we end up with all sorts of substitutes that we have thought up or things that we have made. Really, true worship is illustrated in the song or the psalm or the, the psalm that is the basis of the song that we sung at the very beginning. Uh, when we say to our souls, bless the Lord. And when, and when we often find, as we often do, that the flesh doesn't sing like we know it ought to sing, and the world is heavy upon us, and we're distracted. And when our hearts and minds feel far from the way that they, they ought to feel, we still say, and we really, as Josh said, we command our souls, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's, it's about reminding ourselves of who God is for us in Jesus, of, of, of looking away from ourselves, of that sort of introspection that we oftentimes get into, and, and towards uh, Jesus, and in towards his excellence and, and his worth. 
And this means, finally, that, that true worship is really a gift. We don't have within ourselves the strength or the resources or the emotional competence to just flip a switch and say, all right, today I'm going to worship the Lord like he, ought to, to worship, or like he ought to be worshipped. I'm going to worship the Lord like I really want to worship him so that I know him as my Savior and I, I cherish him above all else and he's my supreme treasure. That, that's a gift. That, that happens when the Spirit works in our lives and makes us aware and opens our eyes and makes us alive to the, the good promises of the gospel. It convicts us of our sin and, and, and reminds us and, and, and tells us how foolish it is to pursue anything else in, in place of God. It's a gift of God. And so the, the way in which we pursue true worship is by total dependence upon the Spirit, total dependence upon the Lord, by, by preparing ourselves to be sure, by, by, by pursuing the means of grace, by, by taking hold of those things that God has given us to awaken in us by the working of His Spirit, uh, passion and, and love for Him, and pursuing those things again and again and again, but reminding ourselves that what God requires of us is merely to look, to look to Him, he doesn't even say, and make sure you see A, B, and C. He says, look, not, uh, not see this, but look to him. And, and, and in the act of looking, he, by his spirit, helps us to, uh, to, to take away all the distractions and, and all the things that get in the way and all the sorts of sins that would so easily bear us down if, if that were the final word between us and God. And he shows us who he is in Jesus for us. And this is why at Christ's community, we place so much emphasis on what God has to say to us in worship and not mainly on what we do or what we feel. And, 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 and also the, the, the response or, or the, the call that God then makes upon us in worship to his glorious truth. And, and Camden reminded us of, uh, reminded us this, of this last week. He, he said that it's, it's not merely to, worship is not merely to elicit an emotional response or to make ourselves think some fine thoughts or feel some fine feelings that, that almost evaporate the moment we leave the building. We come instead to hear the word of God, to hear what God has done for us and to have our hearts molded and, and shaped by our relationship with him so that we respond in obedience to him. And so I'd ask you this question. How do you prepare to worship God with a sincere and ready heart? And what impact has the continued practice of preparing to worship had on your growth as a Christian? Really, this, this gets at the heart of, of something we've been talking about for a while at Christ Community, of the necessity, of the importance of preparing our hearts and minds to worship, of coming with an expectant attitude. Because, you see, false worship, as I said, isn't just a matter of setting up a golden calf or you know, outwardly worshiping some big you know, idol. You know, if that were all it was, we could probably say, well, I got that covered. I don't worship falsely at all. But when it comes to the matter of our hearts, we often find that there are all sorts of idols that get in the way of worship. Even on a Sunday morning, we'd rather sleep in. Or you know, our, the, the, the week ahead and all of the troubles that await us are, are weighing heavily upon us, and we're more distracted by that. Or we're thinking about maybe a broken relationship or a sickness or struggling through some, some instance in which it's hard to see God's love and care for us. And, and so it's so necessary, as I said, to lay hold of the means of grace and to come with hearts expectant that God will use his word to work in our hearts, to awaken affections for him so that we worship him truly in spirit and in truth, recognizing finally that it's not in our power to do this. It's in his gift to us, and it demonstrates his faithfulness to us, his, his gracious love for us. Well, hear what Derek Kidner says about this particular passage, and I particularly appreciate his uh, insight into this. He says, it seems to be an occupational disease of worshipers to think more of the mechanics than of the meaning of what we do, more of getting it right than of getting ourselves right. 
And this can degenerate from thoughtlessness into something worse, ranging from cynical detachment, if we are sophisticated, to religious superstition, if we're not. This parody of worship is not simply meaningless, as we might have guessed, but insulting and even sickening to God, attracting the very judgment it is supposed to avert. Attracting the very judgment it is supposed to avert. You see, God's not pleased when we come and, and just go through the motions. As when we say, well, God, you know, this is what you, you want, and so, you know, to kind of get you off my back so I can go back to doing the things I really want to do, I'll just do it. That doesn't please God at all, and it brings his judgment. And, and as we said, it brings his judgment not because he's, um, he's against us, but because he wants us to see that he is a good, good father to us. And he wants us to be rid of the false suppositions of, of all these false idols, that they're really where our strength and hope and satisfaction lies. It's not. And so God takes these things away. We experience times of his, his cleansing wrath, and we experience times of, of, of dryness, and experience times in which sometimes it doesn't feel like we experience all the good promises that we have in the gospel. But, but ultimately, these things are meant to lead us to true worship of him, of valuing him and ascribing to, ascribing to him all the worth that he is due. And it's not just because he sits against us and that's just sort of the way things are, but because that's where our goodness and, and all the satisfaction that we were made for lies. That's what we were made for. We were made for God. And God wants us to live for him totally. And, and so, you know, even as we think about um, uh, the, the mechanism, of the way this works, about how oftentimes we, we pursue worship as a, as a mechanism rather than from the heart, it's, it's helpful to see from the closing uh, chapters of Hosea 8 how even this kind of worship is not merely offensive to God, it's also very vain. It doesn't affect the sorts of things that we think it's going to affect. So hear it from the word, beginning in verse 11. Because Ephraim has mul multiplied altars for sinning, They've become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will, he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So we see in these verses that Israel has forgotten his maker. That is to say that Israel has forgotten God not simply as the creator of the world, but as the creator of them as a people, as the sustainer and provider and the provider of all the good promises that they had latched onto, and all their blessedness and their favored status among all the nations and the, the covenant relationship that they've been called into. They've forgotten all of that. They've forgotten that God is their maker. And Israel has instead put their trust in all the fortified cities they built, all the, the great structures they built, the palaces, which bring them so much pride. But these things can't deliver them from the judgment. Israel has wasted their time in, in all this false worship. It can't deliver them from the things that they fear. And this is the ultimately uh, fearful end of any attempt to worship God from our own works. We find that however magnificent we think that they are, they can't withstand the scrutiny of God's righteous eye. The only answer is to return to him and find him the safety and refuge we need in him alone. And God says that if he were to write his laws by the 10,000s, they would be regarded by Israel as a strange thing. And that is terrifying. Because it's the height of folly to, re to despise God's word. And this is, yeah, this is the spiritual condition that Israel is in. They don't love the good, but what is wicked, and consequently the very things that they do that seem good to them are 
uh, are folly and wickedness. And the very thing that ought to be their, their good is strange to them. And this means that their destruction follows almost as a matter of course. It's almost already begun. The rod is in the wood. The tree may stand for a minute, but it'll fall pretty soon. And Israel has no confidence in God. They offer meat on their, their altars and sacrifices, but the Lord doesn't pay attention to it because it's vain babbling. And this points us to the fact that apart from God, nothing we can do can last. It's absurd to trust in our outward acts of worship if our hearts are far from the Lord. And this just goes to show that the crucial thing about the Christian life is just that it is about worship. This is what the Bible is all about, not mainly about how to have a successful life or how to get your slice of the American dream or how to make sure you and your family turn out to be well-adjusted and productive members of society or you know, the conflicts at home or the conflicts at work or whatever it might be. The Bible is mainly about worship of God and it's mainly about uh, the, the disconnect between us and God because of our sin and the righteous uh, and holy gospel that, that has drawn us into the fellowship despite our, of God, despite our sin, because he loves us. And that is a gift of God, and it's uh, received by faith through grace in Christ alone. That's what the Bible is about. And it does have something to say about all the other things in life, certainly. But if we try to get at it in the, sort of the reverse order, so that we say, well, you know, I, I'll approach the Bible sort of like an encyclopedia so that I know how to treat my neighbor well, or, um, you know, I know how to, to, to be a productive member of society or to get some honor or all, you know, whatever you could imagine. But don't have any concern about the, the sovereignty of God and, and don't have any concern about um, his worth and don't have any concern to become the kind of person that loves him from the heart. Then whatever we may say or whatever wisdom we may try to glean from, you know, the Bible about the rest, the rest of the aspects of our lives turn out to be just vain babbling a vanity and emptiness because we don't love the Lord from the heart so we don't obey him from the heart. So the result of knowing God truthfully is that we grow in our love for an ability to obey his word the way he meant for us to obey it. God is near to those who fear him. But remember also the way the Bible tells us how this works. It's not that we do good things that God is obliged to reward because even our faith is a gift from him. It's that everything that we do depends upon his graciousness and love and kindness to us. And we, we receive it by faith. So don't try to get everything sorted out in your life before you come to worship him. Don't, don't assume that you know, if, if your life isn't squeaky clean, then you can't come to worship him. Then you'll rob him yourself of the very means of grace that have been given to you to become the kind of person that God wants you to be. If, if you wait until you, you know, can come to God with a self-scrub image, you'll never come to him at all. Run to the one who has provided you redemption by his own sacrifice and promises you new life by, his, by the covenant he has secured by his own blood. And Jesus will keep his promises to us in the end. Our perseverance is not guaranteed by our strength or anything we have in ourselves. It's guaranteed by, um, by his faithfulness. And this means that, that at the end of the day, our apathy or our struggles to believe, our struggles to, to hope and trust don't have the final say. Because God is the faithful one who calls us in to a relationship with himself. And it also means that our relationship with God is not, uh, is not commodified. It means that, you know, it, 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 that what God desires of us isn't that we do A, B, and C so that he is on our side and we get good things. It's that what God desires of us is a relationship in which we love him from the heart. And he, um, it, he, he exalts over the people and the good work that he has done by his spirit. And he sees in it uh, the manifestation of his glory and, and his goodness and his sovereign power. And this means that worship radically and, and totally affects our lived-out reality. Worship isn't relegated to some corner of your life. It affects everything. 
Remember what we saw from, um, from Hosea chapter 4. We saw that worship uh, shapes our knowledge of God, and, and this determines how we, how we relate to God and to each other. And, and what this means is that what we value and, and trust and love, uh, love supremely comes out of us in the moment-by-moment -moment interactions and experiences of our lives. It comes out in how we deal with the conflicts at work, or, or whether we are casualties to just things that happen, and we don't know how to respond, and, and we don't know how to evidence God's graciousness and, and light uh, in a particular instance. Um, on the other hand, though, if worship is shaping the, the kind of people that we are, and it's shaping our, our loves and our trusts and our hopes, it means that we're able, out of that abundance, to to be light to this, to this culture, to be, to be light in the conflicts at work, not to be a casualty to the moment-by-moment -moment things that happen to us. So our text encourages us to reflect upon certain realities about God, that if we really knew them, if we really know them from the heart, direct our worship away from false idols and false securities and towards the Lord. Let us reflect upon the fact that the Lord is. He is our maker. He's our creator. He exists before all things and is dependent upon nothing and no one. He has made, therefore, he will bear. He created us. He, he, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So he doesn't lay upon us burdens beyond, um, uh, beyond human ability. He doesn't require of us things to know that we could never possibly know. Uh, oftentimes it feels that the world loves a religion that it can't understand. The, 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 the more mysterious, the better. The, the more the duties are piled up high that you never know you'll ever, you'll ever be able to get to, the, the better. Um, which, is, which is just a, a remarkable testimony to the foolishness of our own false worship. That, that we, in an, in an attempt to escape from what, what we often call the overbearing promises of God or the overbearing commands of God, we run to, in, into the arms of commandments and religious systems that are a thousand times more uh, uh, a makes us a thousand times more slaves, a thousand times harder to keep. And, and, and we, we, we recall that God is uh, faithful to his covenant promises to us. He, he, he is faithful to uh, do all the things that he has commanded us to do, and, and, and he calls us into that, that love and gives us the strength to obey him from the heart. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. He, he calls us to remember his faithfulness to us and out of that to, to trust him with all of our hearts. And let us reflect, reflect upon the fact that God is holy. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He can't be placated by mere animal sacrifices or any really other kind of ceremony offered by worshipers whose uh, concern is really just to get God off their back so they can get back to doing what they really want to do. No, he is worthy of all worship and righteous, and, and, and to prefer anything in place of him is to commit the, the, the utmost act of rebellion that can be imagined. And so let us quickly remember that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor really keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And let us reflect upon the fact that God is our protector and provider. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be cast into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and tremble, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Remember that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, because God is in the midst of her. He will help her. He is in the midst of her. God, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
So don't put your trust in the fortresses you've made or the great palaces or office parks or political parties or healthcare facilities or banks or real estate or anything else and forget about his kingdom and his righteousness. In the long march of our days, God's faithfulness to us counts for everything. And the mark of it is our faithful response and obedient worship to him. Do you, have little, do you feel that you often have little excitement for the things of God? Well, fan into flame what you have by a careful consideration of his excellence and his, his worth. As I said, look to Jesus. We look away from ourselves. Get away from the, the, the feeling of introspection that you don't measure up, that, that there are things that you uh, ought to do or feel that you don't. Instead, look to him and him alone. And remember that it oftentimes isn't always banner and fire, banners and fireworks. It oftentimes isn't the feeling of, of spiritual high that we so long for. Sometimes it is, and that's a blessed thing. But oftentimes it comes through the, the disciplined march of remembering who God is for us, uh, of carefully considering his promises, of, of diligently attending to the means of grace in worship on Sunday morning, throughout the rest of the week, as we remember in uh, the reading of his word and, and, and in praying to him, as we relate to him as a father and not as a uh, a distant tyrant or a monarch who doesn't care for us or who merely sets out commandments that are not for our good and, uh, and, and, and are tyrannical. But instead, let us remember that he is for us and all these good things. And let that be the fire that uh, stirs up your soul in worshipful reverence to him. And so what are some ways in which God has removed things in which you've trusted in place of him? And how did this help you to grow in your worship of him? Let's recall again that even as we've considered hard things from the, from the book of Hosea, and even as we've seen the destructive consequences of false worship or false, tru- false trust in, in political systems or um, the, the many ways in which we, we get away from the covenant promises that God has made to us, let's remember that there are, throughout this book and, 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 and finally in the gospel, promises of, of gospel air that we can breathe in deeply. And remember that God is for us in every good way and that his his judgment against us is redemptive. That it's meant to draw us back to him and he will be faithful to return us to the Lord. So what does Hosea 8 teach us? Well, at least two things. God desires that we grow in our love for him and obedience to his word through our worship of him. God desires that we grow in our love for him and obedience to his word through our worship from him, uh, of him. And also, false worship produces destruction. The two things, you see, are are so intimately tied together that when we pursue worship away from the good things of God, we end up in vanity and destruction. But God desires that we worship him, and out of our worship of him, be drawn into his fellowship so that we love him and obey him from the heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who cares for us, that you, in your redemptive judgment against uh, all of our sin, draw us back into fellowship with yourself, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of your faithfulness to us, because of the gift of the gospel to us that we receive by faith alone, uh, uh, by trust in you alone, not by trying to work our way into your pleasure or your favored presence, instead by remembering who you are for us in Jesus. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, not being mindful of uh, the ways in which we so often get distracted or the things we put in place of you, instead looking to Jesus as our righteousness and our hope. We ask that this would uh, inflame in our hearts a desire more and more to obey you, to see the things that you have commanded us to do as for our good, and even in all of that, to become the kind of people that manifest your kingdom in this world which is lost and dying because of its trust in in false religions and, and false idols. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that love you from the heart, for Jesus' sake. 
and amen.